Like all of you, I'm, I'm sure, over the past year we've received lots of invitations, invitations to go to places and to, to gather and spend time with people. But as of yet, of course, we've not been able to respond to these invitations with, with anything other than a, a genuine willingness to go, expressing a willingness to go to go and see loved ones, to get time with friends, to maybe attend a wedding, to even meet newly born children. The list goes on and on for all of us, I'm sure. Invitations over the past year, and all we could do was express our willingness to go. Today we're going to spend a little bit of time in a place that we have visited often in the Bible. Genesis chapter 12 the call of Abraham. And we won't take much time in this space. We won't look at the fine details. We've covered it a lot over over the past number of years. But it's worth stopping off here on our tour throughout the Bible because this is such a pivotal moment in God's story. It's such a central moment in God's story. And also there are principles which undergird this moment in God's story that are so relevant to our now. So we, we reacquaint ourselves with an old friend. In fact, he's, he's very old. Thousands of years old, we might say. It's generally understood that Abraham lived, walked, breathed around 4,000 years ago minimum. Possibly more familiar to us uh, than, than any of the Old Testament figures. We might say, well, actually, there are others that, that we, we know better. But I think for a lot of us, we would say that Abraham, Abraham is one of the most well-known, well-acquainted with figures of the Old Testament, maybe even of the Old and the New. Genesis 10 and 11 that we looked at last week. In, in those chapters... What we have is laid out generations from Noah's three sons. You have Ham, Shem and Japheth. And where Genesis 11 takes a slight detour in these genealogies uh, to go to the Tower of Babel, we return to the genealogy here uh, in chapter uh, 11 just after the, the, the Babel account, we go back to the genealogies and we are introduced to, to Nahor, who fathered Terah, and Terah, of course, who then fathered Abram. We see from this that Abram was a descendant of Shem, so one of Noah's three sons. And it's so significant here that one man will come in, in the future who will also be of the line of, of Shem. Luke 3 
tells us uh, of the genealogy which goes right back to Shem and beyond. That's the genealogy of that one man, Jesus Christ. But, but Abraham uh, becomes so significant to God's story that the genealogy of Matthew 1 doesn't go back as far as, as Shem and beyond to Adam. It, it starts with today's main character. Matthew's genealogy begins with, with Abraham. And, and God shows us in that, that that he's starting something new here. There's something significant happening in this moment. And it's pointing forward to the coming of one who will be significant to everyone. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to look at Genesis uh, chapter 11, verse 27, and then into Genesis 12. We'll read the first four and a half verses of Genesis um, chapter 12. So Genesis 11, verses 27 and onwards. These are the family records of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans during his father Terah's lifetime. Abram and Nahor took wives. Abraham's wife was named Sarai, and Nahor's wife was named Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran. Uh, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson, Lot, that was uh, Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, his son, Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to uh, Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. So there we go. A short, uh, a short delve into Genesis 11 and 12 to a story that we are all really familiar with. Now, we saw last week that not everyone had maintained an active, honouring faith that had come off the ark with Noah. We saw, for example, that, that Nimrod, the descendant of Ham, pioneered a culture not based on, on faithful worship to God. And, and we saw what happened to that very culture. The same thing that happens, in a sense, to every culture throughout time, eventually, Every culture that chooses the path not based on faithful worship to God. But with Shem's descendants, we see a ray of sunlight, a glimmer of hope, we might say. Now, it's important to know here that we don't know much about Terah's faith. So we don't know 
how Abraham was raised. We don't know the, the household faith of Terah, the details, the fine details. We don't know what kind of faith Abraham was raised in. Uh, there's lots of conjecture uh, conjecture about, about the kind of faith practices of the people of the time. But as I say, there's a ray of a light and a glimmer of hope. And we can see that because there's an open channel here between heaven and earth. Now we see that the evidence of an open channel between heaven and earth because firstly, we see that God speaks to Abraham. Secondly, we see that Abraham hears God. And most importantly, thirdly, we see that Abraham responds obediently to God's instruction. Now, there have been countless sermons done on that over the years, so we won't, we won't uh, labour that point too much, um, but we're going to tease it out a little bit as we, we go. We've also already seen that God is willing to go out of his way to make unconditional promises in the form of a covenant. We saw that he promised never again to flood the earth. We've also seen that since he first created humans, God has commanded them to do certain things and to varying degrees, people have, have responded positively to that. Some, of course, we know negatively. But there's something significant, so significant about this moment. Here we have God revealing his determined, uh, resolute love for humanity. And he's doing it through astonishing promises made to one man. There's the promise that he will make one man into a multitude. One man into a multitude. Uh, that, that he will take one man's willingness and, and, and a desire to obey and, and grow that into a nation which will impact the world. Incredible. What I want us to see in that moment is that God will do the work. God will, God will do the work. He's promised that he will do the work. It's the I wills of Genesis 12. God will do the work in the hearts and minds of all who are willing, starting here with Abraham, but of course blossoming out from there. It's, it's a world-changing moment that starts in the heart and mind of one man. And there it is nurtured and it is prospered through what we see as a marriage, the context of marriage, that, that, uh, that faith in the heart and mind of one man is prospered. And then we see it continued in the raising of children. And then maintaining faith in the household. And then going out into the community from there. Do you want to know the, the, the greatest solution to the challenges of today's society? I think it's found right in those very principles. In the faith of one individual, which is nurtured in a loving relationship, maybe in the context of marriage in this regard. That's why God cares so much about uh, believers marrying believers. There's a power in that kind of unity. And then in the raising of, of children, Raising them um, actively and intentionally in faith, passing on faith from generation to generation. We see that in Abraham's story, of course, with Sarai. Now, 
we see here in, in Abraham also what we perhaps know all too well of ourselves. Now, I know for me, I can relate really well to Abraham's early faith journey. I, I see myself in his moments of great faith and in his moments of great failure. Maybe you too can relate to that. Maybe you too sometimes um, have found you've had great moments of faith. Maybe you've found you've had moments of failure. Maybe you've even had moments where you question whether you've now failed or strayed too many times for God to still want to work through you. Now, if you do feel that, I want I want you to to um, draw the headline details from today's word uh, in God's story. Draw out of God's story and draw encouragement from it. One of the best ways we can draw the headline of that dynamic out is to ask the question, what did Abraham do in order to be called by God? What did Abraham do? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us really much of the details of this moment, but I think that we can actually draw two important dynamics out from what the word does say. The first point is that God's determined here to achieve his purposes for humanity through humanity. So there's one strong teaching point for us. God's determined to achieve his purposes for humanity through humanity. That's the way God's chosen to do it. Some might say he could have done it differently. God chose to do it that way through humanity. The second point is that Abraham's only prerequisite uh, to have been uh, called and chosen by God seems to be an intentional willingness to hear and to obey. The question, what did Abraham do in order to be called by God? Well, firstly, it starts with God. God's intentional in wanting to work through humanity. But secondly, the only prerequisite Abraham seems to demonstrate is an intentional willingness to hear and to obey. And what I love about the Abraham account is that even though God knew that Abraham was going to stumble and trip towards the end goal, he knew also that Abraham would keep at least one ear open to God along the way and that Abraham would keep moving in the general direction that God had instructed him to travel. Now, the question we could ask is, could Abraham have done it better? And the answer is absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And again, I raise my hand there and I, I, I say that I could have done a lot of things better over the years on my journey of faith. But let's look at Genesis chapter 16 to see one really great example of what not to do and how he could have done things better. Abraham's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. There's lots of questions we could raise about, about the issue of having slaves in the Old Testament. It's important for us not to misunderstand or, or, or to misinterpret what slavery was in the Old Testament when we look at it through the eyes, uh, the modern contemporary eyes of slavery. It was different and it's important for us to emphasise that. But there still are ethical questions there, valid ethical questions. 
So, uh, Sarai uh, owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Now, there's so many dynamics of that that are, that are not accurate or not wise. Did God prevent Sarai from having uh, children? Well, what we know is that God has already promised Abraham that he's going to father children. And we know what's going to happen through Sarai. So, so there's a question mark there. The other question mark is, why does Abraham agree to do what she proposed? Could he have done things better? Absolutely. Would it have pleased God's heart if he had done things better? Undoubtedly. But God persevered because of of God's faithfulness. And because, as we'll see, Abraham overall showed the, the faith and the trust to stand up to dust himself off and to move forward in obedience every time he fell. Every time he made a mistake, he chose to get his eyes back on God, stand up, dust himself off and walk on forward. We see countless flaws in Abraham's early journey. But what we don't see in Abraham's journey is a rejection of God or a rejection of God's plans and promises. Now, what we do see in Genesis 16 there is Abraham trying to manufacture a solution uh, or 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 um, push forward, uh, advance God's promises in a way that God had not desired. But what we don't see is a rejection of God or a rejection of God's plans and promises. We do see Abraham's struggle in the waiting for, for God's promise to come to pass. And, and as we say, his overzealous and at times foolish determination to force God's promises to come to pass before their time. Maybe you can relate to that. Have you ever struggled in the waiting? Have you ever tried to make God's promises come to pass before their appointed time? I know I have. What we do see, and what makes this this account in in the in the early portions of our, our scriptures so significant, what we see in in what makes Abraham become Abraham, a high father to become the father of many nations, what we see that makes him immortalized in the Old Testament and and commended in the New Testament. Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith, Abraham's in there. What we see is a determination on his part to persevere in trust and faith even after he screwed up. He acknowledges his screw-ups. He picks himself up, dusts himself off and gets back on the pathway towards God's promise. And there's a lesson in there for me. Is there a lesson in there for you too? What we have is one man of faith, a man of faith who became a household of faith, which became a people of faith, which became a nation of faith, and ultimately through Jesus Christ being Abraham's great, 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 how many greats would that be? I'm not sure. His great-grandson. 
through Jesus Christ, they become a multitude of faith. And it's a multitude of faith that will live on for all eternity, together in the presence of the God who challenged one man of faith to get up and to go. And it's these, actually, these simple words that I want to really finish on today. It's the get up and go. It's the get up and go. Now, for us at the moment in church, in this context of church, everybody is getting up and going in some way or another. It might be that you just got up and went to your kitchen, your lounge or your study to listen to this. For others, on a Sunday morning as they come to the actual church building, it's getting up and going in the car and coming to the church building. You've all responded to the call of God to not forsake the gathering. Because that is the space where we declare the common voice of Scripture, where we learn God's truth lived out through God's people and God's interaction with God's people. We declare the common voice of Scripture and the hope of God found ultimately in Jesus Christ. It's the place where we build one another up. It's the place where we gather amongst family, every one of us bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Get up and go, and so we come and we congregate. And this is one of what I, I taught in January of the four foundations of our faith. That the large church gathering, the big church gathering, is a place where some of God's purposes can be achieved. And, and I want to emphasize some of God's purposes. But just like Abraham, we've all been given the call to get up and go in other ways as well. To get up and go, go to where I will show you. To intentionally listen to the voice of God. To respond to the leading of God by getting up and going out into the world. Not just getting up and going to be with the church but getting up and going out into the world and, and in that to rely on his leading and his direction on the journey. Why is the account of Abraham so very significant for us today? Well, yes, in its primary reading and its primary meaning, it of course relates to the founding of the nation that will be God's nation that will be the light unto the world. But when we look deeply into this moment of God's history, we also see what can be achieved through one person declaring God's ways through a household and out into a community and ultimately across a nation and then nations. It is a slow, methodical, intentional, deliberate process. It's not a quick fix. It's a slow, methodical, intentional, deliberate process that involved face-to-face -face engagement. Face-to-face -face engagement with other people and a patience to see God's will achieved over the long haul. Now in January, I invited all of us to embark upon 
a discipleship journey with one or two other people. Men gathering with men and women gathering with women to create an, a, a, an intentional space where you could meet regularly, you can grow into maturity in faith together. It's a, a space where you can be real about life, where you can open your hearts, let down your guard, where you can praise God in each other's victories and seek God in each other's challenges. And I know that a number of people uh, at OBC have been doing that, and I commend you for it. And it is a space for you. It's a space for you. But it's not only meant to be a space just for you. There's more potential in that space. One of the few things I took from a church uh, that I was part of years ago, a, a difficult church to be part of at times, but... But one of the few things that I took was a phrase that's never left me. But now more than ever, it seems important to share. And that is the phrase, each one reach one. Now, it's a phrase that perhaps you've heard before. It's a, it's a catchy phrase. It's a memorable phrase. And we could be in danger of being flippant as we use it. Each one reach one. But in this phrase, we hear God's call to mission, given to every single one of us. God's call to mission given to all of us, and also it's one that none of us are exempt from. God's call to mission is relevant to every single one of us. If you are in Christ, then you are part of the work of Christ, and part of that work is the call to mission. Now we would turn in this moment to uh, verses that are so, again, so familiar to us, but it's worth emphasizing them almost on a weekly basis. We hear God's call to mission given to every single one of us, but importantly, equipped by the Spirit to achieve it. Matthew chapter 28, we know these verses so well. Jesus said uh, to them, this is verse 18, to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Imagine with me a a, a picture of fruit, a picture of fruitfulness, of each one of us reaching out to somebody in our community and leading them to Jesus. Just one person, each person reaching one person. Now maybe that strikes fear into your heart. Maybe you think, well, bring it on. I love that kind of thing. But I think for a lot of us, we maybe feel I'm not really sure how to go about doing that or or I struggle with courage and confidence. Well, for us as a church, we want to start looking at uh, relational uh, evangelism and how we can actually share Christ in a meaningful and sustainable way to people that are already part of our life. But if everyone reached just one person uh, across the next year, for example, 
and, and drew them into that discipleship space where you meet with a fellow brother or if you're a, if you're a lady with a fellow sister, draw them into that space uh, where they can be discipled and raised in the word of God and in the truth of God. Imagine the growth for the kingdom of God. The, the, the kingdom that, that we are part of in our locality doubles just because each one reached one. It is it's sad to say that people uh, in this current contemporary climate just don't come to church. It's very rare for them to come to church. And that's why we champion the idea, invite them into that discipleship space. Invite them into that safe place where there's one or two others where people can be vulnerable, they can be honest, they can ask the kinds of questions that people seeking and searching for Jesus and for truth can ask, they want to ask. So, great space to do that. It's so important in this to emphasize once again, who is doing the work in all of this? Who did the work in Abraham's journey? Well, who was the, the predominant power in that work? It of course was God working, working through his incredible power and by his will. Abraham's only apparent qualification for God's task was a willingness to listen and a willingness to go. Now we know he made mistakes along the way, but we also know that because he persevered, God's plans were brought to fruition. Now we sit here today as, as the very evidence of one man's willingness to obey God's call to go. So let's use Abraham's story as inspiration this morning and as a challenge to pray to God, God, where do you want me to go? To whom do you want me to speak? Father, lead me on and give me the courage to do your will. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.